Last time we spoke about the command team offensive in New Guinea. The drive to Leh and Salamaua was raging on on New Guinea. Mount Tambu was assaulted and the Allies received hellish casualties trying to take it. The legendary Bol Allen saved countless lives during this action, but Mount Tambu simply couldn't be captured. The Allies chose to isolate and surround Mount Tambu instead. The Allies then secured Sugarcane Knoll, the Timber Knoll, and then found a path heading to Comantium. General Nakano ordered his men to hold Comantium Ridge, but their situation became more and more desperate. Allied artillery and aerial bombardment alongside the enveloping maneuvers were taking a toll. The Japanese had suffered 900 casualties since July the 23rd. With more men dying by the minute, General Nakano ordered a withdrawal from Comantium, still believing the primary target of the Allies was Salamaua. This episode is The Fall of Kiska and the Battle of Vela La Vela. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we begin, I just wanted to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Maybe you want to learn a bit more about the Battle of Kiska? Check out my podcast interview I did with Brad St. Croix on the experience of Canada during the Pacific War. Also, don't forget I myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. This month's exclusive podcast is a two-part series on responsibility and failures of Emperor Hirohito during the war. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. So, before venturing back to the frigid northern Aleutians, we have a lot of action to talk about in the South Pacific. On August the 3rd, General Sasaki was forced to order withdrawal from Munda. General Griswold sent a message over to Admiral Halsey declaring... Our ground forces today wrestled Munda from the Japs and presented to you as sole owner. Admiral Halsey, in his typical fashion, replied, Keep him dying. Now, despite the blood, sweat, and tears taking Munda, as a whole, Operation Cartwheel had fallen a month behind schedule. As Griswold would note, The month's fighting had not been the Americans' finest hour in the Solomon Islands campaign. Halsey likewise would add this. The smoke and charred reputations still makes me cough. Now just because Munda had fallen did not mean the work was all done. There was to be cleanup operations, of course. General Sasaki ordered his forces to retreat northwards. Most were en route to the Kuri 6 farm. The 13th Regiment and Sasaki's HQ were going to Baroko, 
The 3rd Battalion, 23rd Regiment, and Yokosuka 7th Guns were heading to Banga Island. The Americans were, of course, in hot pursuit. General Griswold divided the cleanup operations, giving the 25th Division the task of advancing across New Georgia to seize Barocco Harbor and the Peru Plantation. General Hodge's 43rd Division was given the task of seizing the islands of Arundel and Banga. General Collins would deploy the 1st Battalion, 27th Regiment, and Colin Dalton's 161st Regiment to advance up the Barocco Trail. The rest of Colin Douglas Suggs' 27th would advance along the Zeta Trail towards the Puro Plantation. General Sasaki learned on August the 6th the American Navy had scored a small but conclusive victory when six U.S. destroyers sunk three IGN destroyers, the Arashi, Kawakaze, and the Hagikaze, during the naval battle of Vela Gulf. This, of course, meant the Japanese reinforcement convoy had failed. The Sasaki wasted no time ordering a general withdrawal to Kolombangara by the way of Banga Island. Sasaki needed to give the men more time, so he reinforced the Yano Battalion with the 12th Company of the 3rd Battalion, 23rd Regiment, who were left to defend the Curry 6th Farm. Major Yano Keiji, a veteran of Guadalcanal, selected a rough terrain east and south of Zeta Village and the Curry 6th Farm to dig in. The Americans would later refer to it as the Zeta Garden. The garden was to be Yano's first line of defense across the Zeta River. There was a bit of high ground due north of Zeta Village which would have been easier to defend, but he needed his men to protect the trail running to Lulu Channel and Banga. This was his only line of communication. The 3rd Battalion and 23rd Regiment in the meantime were securing Banga. General Sasaki radioed his plans to the 8th Fleet, but to his surprise, he was told to hold on to New Georgia until late September for, quote, future operations. Sasaki was bewildered by this, but understood Admiral Samajima, then commanding the 8th Fleet, was trying to direct a land battle, and obviously he was not experienced in such things. What Sasaki did not know at the time was Samajima was being instructed by General Headquarters to do this. On August the 7th, the Army and Navy had agreed to pull out of the Central Solomons and would cooperate to bolster Bougainville's defenses. A revision later on August the 13th would instruct Koga, Kuzaka, and Imamura to hold onto as much of New Georgia as possible, while Bougainville would be reinforced. Full evacuation of New Georgia was set for late September to early October, but the actual dates were dependent on Bougainville's progress. On August the 8th, Sug's 2nd Battalion advanced through a deep ravine going roughly two miles up the trail when his men were met with heavy machine gun fire. The Anno Battalion was defending the barge supply route through the Lulu Channel as their comrades and supplies made their way over to Banka Island. On August the 9th, the 27th began their assault upon the Curry 6 farm, employing an envelopment maneuver. The Yano Battalion was holding them at bay, but gradually the Allied forces were confining the Japanese into a smaller and smaller pocket. Meanwhile, the 1st Battalion was advancing north along the Munda Baroku Trail, where they joined Colonel Liversedge's men. On the 10th, Hodge ordered the 169th Regiment to hit Banga, and on the 11th, patrols from the 3rd Battalion had located the Japanese strongpoint on its southwest tip. By nightfall, the American assault on the Curry 6 farm forced Yano to withdraw back across the Zeta River to form a new defensive perimeter. His men performed a fighting withdrawal throughout the night, seeing many Japanese scream and throw rocks at the Americans. 
the usual nighttime activities that kept the Allied forces miserable. On the 12th, the Americans unleashed an artillery bombardment upon the Curry 6 farm positions, not realizing they had already been abandoned. The 89th Field Artillery had fired 2,700 rounds, the heaviest concentration of the operation, on completely empty positions. The Americans advanced over to Yano's old positions, crossing the river, and they fell upon Yano's new defensive perimeter. On that day, General Barker assumed command of the 43rd Division as General Hodge returned to his command of the Americal Division. Barker began by sending L Company of the 169th Regiment to occupy Banga. L Company was met with unexpectedly heavy Japanese fire, suffering 28 casualties before they were forced to pull back. Meanwhile, on August the 13th, Sugg's 3rd Battalion and E Company managed to launch their main assault against the Yano Battalion. They were attempting an envelopment maneuver against Yano's flanks, but heavy resistance saw Yano's right flank repel the attack. Over on the left, there was a marshy plain that hindered the American advance, forcing them to go way far to the left, and thus they failed to apply enough pressure. Although the assault failed, the unexpected left advance saw some gain. A patrol from H Company stumbled across a heavily used trail leading to the Lulu Channel. They established a roadblock that very night, allowing ambush efforts to hit the trail. The roadblock convinced Yano he was soon going to be cut off, so he immediately prepared a withdrawal to Banga. In the meantime, Barker decided to use Velasella Island as a launching point for an assault against Banga. On August the 14th, the 3rd Battalion 169th Regiment began occupying the small island before using it as a springboard to land on Banga. However, the Americans quickly found themselves surrounded by a mangrove swamp and the Japanese began tossing counterattacks until the night fell upon them. Yano's forces repelled numerous American attacks from the 3rd Battalion throughout the day, afternoon, and night. The Japanese threw back one attack led by four Marine tanks, which had crossed the river on a bridge engineers had built recently. While doing this, his men also began their retreat westwards. H Company met a brief exchange with Yano's men. But Yano decided not to seriously clash with them, and he withdrew his battalion to Banga by the 15th. The 27th occupied Zeta Village, making contact with Schultz 3rd Battalion 140th Infantry over at Zeta Hill to the north. After this, the 27th would advance upon the Puru Plantation and the Sunday Inlet, to which they would run into a mangrove swamp, greatly hindering them. The fight for Zeta area had cost them around 168 casualties. The Americans were seeing a continuous flow of fierce counterattacks directed at Banga, prompting Barker to decide he would need to reinforce the beachhead with the 2nd Battalion 169th Regiment and the 1st and 3rd Battalions of the 172nd Regiment. At this point, General Griswold and Admirals Halsey and Wilkinson were trying to figure out what to do next. Halsey's original plan after taking Munda was to attack Kolombangera, but the recent performance of the Japanese defenders made the Americans quite skittish about performing an amphibious invasion. The battle for Munda Point was one of the fiercest defenses the Japanese had put up. More than 30,000 troops had been brought over to face against 5,000 Japanese defenders within their network of entrenchments. As pointed out by the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Navy planning memorandum, if we are going to require such overwhelming superiority at every point where we attack the Japanese, it is time for radical change in the estimate of the forces that will be required to defeat the Japanese now in the Southwest and Central Pacific. 
Mundanet airfield would become a landmark victory because of the 6,000-foot runway it would soon provide, alongside taxiways and its capacity as a base of operations. Halsey would later declare its airfield to be the finest in the South Pacific, and the Seabees would be awarded with a citation for their great efforts. CB Commander Doan would receive a special mention by virtue of his planning, leadership, industry, and working round-the-clock to make serviceable the Munda airfield on August the 14th of 1943, a good four days ahead of the original schedule. The CB's work was a testament not only to their morale and organization, but also to the fact they held superior equipment. Admiral Nimitz would go on the record to state, one of the outstanding features of the war in both the North and South Pacific areas has been the ability of U.S. forces to build and use airfields on a terrain and with a speed with which would have been considered fantastically impossible in our pre-war days. Overall, the Georgia campaign would go on to be the essential component in the strangulation of Rabaul, as pointed out by historian Elliot Morrison. The Central Solomons ranks with Guadalcanal and the Bunagona for intensity and human tribulation. We had Munda, and we needed it for the next move, towards Rabaul, but we certainly took it the hard way. The strategy and tactics of the New Georgia campaign were among the least successful of any Allied campaign in the Pacific. Now, Allied intelligence indicated Kolombangara had roughly 10,000 Japanese defenders. Thus, Admiral Halsey was inclined to seek an alternative method rather than slugging it out with them. He thought perhaps they could bypass Columbangara completely and instead land on Vela La Vela. If they managed to pull that off, it would effectively cut off the Japanese supply line to Columbangara, which was basically surviving on fishing boats and barges based out of Buin. Admiral Halsey noted, Columbangara was 35 miles nearer the shortlands and Kahili. According to the Coast Watchers, its garrison numbered not more than 250, and its shoreline would offer at least one airstrip. A reconnaissance carried out back on July the 22nd reported very few enemy troops on the island, and that it held a feasible airfield site at Barakoma, which also had beaches capable for LSTs to land on. Thus Halsey approved the plan, and Griswold formed the Northern Landing Force, placed under the command of Brigadier General Robert McClure. The force consisted of the recently arrived 35th Regiment of the 25th Division, attached to the 25th Cavalry Reconnaissance Troops, all led by Colonel Everett Brown, the 4th Defense Battalion, the 58th Naval Construction Battalion, and a naval base group. To hit Vela Lavella would require air supremacy, and artillery planted upon the Piru Plantation and the Inugai Baroko area. General Twinning's air souls had about 161 fighters back on July the 31st, but by August the 18th, they would have 129 still functioning. Twinning had sufficient strength in bombers, as a number of light and medium bombers had dropped by less than a dozen, so they were around 129. For heavy bombers, his increased from 48 to 61. It was critical Munda airfields be fully operational by mid-August, so the CBs of the 73rd and 24th Naval Construction Battalions went to work. 
Admiral Fitch's plan for Moon Airfield called for a six-foot-long runway with a minimum of eight-inch coral surface and taxiways and revments, ready for over 200 fighters by September the 25th. Eventually, this would also include 48 heavy bombers. The immediate job was the fighter strip, as always. You prepare your defenses against other air attacks before you bring in the heavy stuff. He had a week to make the field operational. Commander Doan of the 73rd Seabees had two critical assets. The first was that Munda was by far the best airfield site in the Solomons. Beneath one to three feet of topsoil was solid coral, and there was a plentiful supply of live coral which hardened like concrete, great for surfacing. Secondly, the 73rd was the best equipped battalion yet to arrive to the Solomons with D7 and D8 bulldozers, 3 4 yard power shovels, 8-yard carryalls, and 7-ton rollers. Weather was good, and the moon was bright for a week, permitting night work without lights. The immediate threat would have been a 12-centimeter gun of the Yokosuka 7th SNLF at Banga, but they never fired upon them. Again, wars are won by logistics, and it can't be expressed enough what a colossal amount the CBs did for the Pacific War. By August the 14th, Macaulay flew over to set up his HQ, and the VMF-123 and VMF-124 flew into the base with a R-4D carrying their gear and personnel. For the incoming invasion, P-40s would be coming from Segi, while Corsairs would be launched from Munda. Admiral Kuzaka had reformed the first base air force thanks to the arrival of his long-sought reinforcements. In mid-July, reinforcements arrived to the Solomons in the form of the 201st Kokutai Aerial Bomb Group and Carrier Division 2's naval bombers from the Ryujo. The overall strength of the 1st Base Air Force was now at around 230 aircraft of various types. The land-based bombers would go to Rear Admiral Uno Kezo's 25th Air Flotilla over in Rabaul. They were tasked with night bombing raids against Guadalcanal and New Georgia now. Naval fighters and bombers would be merged into the 1st Combined Air Attack Force, later reformed in the 26th Air Flotilla led by Rear Admiral Sakamaki Minutake. Their job was to destroy any enemy shipping in New Georgia and to conduct interceptions over the Mundabun areas. It was understood the Americans held numerical superiority, but the Japanese, as typical of them, were willing to take them on, hoping their fighting spirit would prevail. Meanwhile, back on the night of August the 12th, Admiral Wilkinson deployed an advance party of 14 men led by Captain George Kreiner to perform a reconnaissance of Vela La Vela. They would be reinforced by companies E and G of the 103rd Regiment when the scouts found 40 Japanese around Biloa and another 100 Japanese five miles north of Barakoma. They had reached the island secretly using four PT boats, although Japanese floatplanes would discover them and bomb one of the PT boats. After the successful arrival of the advance party at Barakoma, F Company of the 103rd landed on August the 14th to reinforce the beachhead. The main invasion force designated Task Force 31, led by Admiral Wilkinson, would consist of 10 destroyers, 5 destroyer transports, 12 LCIs, 3 LSTs, and 2 sub-chasers. At 3.05 a.m., the first transport group of the force departed consisting of the destroyer transports with six escort destroyers, who were carrying the 1st and 2nd battalions of the 35th Regiment. Captain Ryan led the group aboard Nicholas, while Wilkinson was aboard Connie. The second transport group, made up of the smaller vessels, carried the CBs and the support personnel, following an hour later, 
which was escorted by four destroyers led by Captain William Cook. After the force departed Guadalcanal, they were to approach the Gizo Strait around midnight before beginning to unload in the early hours of August 15th under the cover of fighters. However, Wilkinson would not be aware his force was spotted by a G3 Embedi bomber, which reported back to Admiral Samaki, who immediately launched a strike force. By 8 a.m., the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 35th Regiment had landed. While the 3rd Battalion began their unloading process, enemy aircraft appeared. 48 Zeros and 6 Vals were intercepted by American fighters. By 9.15, all the troops were landed, and now the equipment began to be unloaded. The Japanese launched two waves from Bun. The first appeared at 12.30, made up of 48 Zeros and 11 Vals. They were intercepted, leading to no damage being done to the landing forces. Seven Zeros came in low to strafe the beach, but were turned away by the fire from 65 automatic weapons aboard the LSTs. The LSTs in the past lacked adequate anti-aircraft protection. Thus, 20 20 20mm guns were borrowed from Guadalcanal to be set upon them. At 5.30, 32 Zeros and 8 Vals showed up, but they too were intercepted. By 6 p.m., the LSTs were beginning to retract from the beaches. The strikes had amounted to 12 men killed on the beach and 40 wounded. It could have been much worse. The Japanese reported losing 9 Zeros and 8 Vals for the day, while the Americans would claim to have lost a total of 5 fighters. Without any real land battle, the amphibious invasion of Vela La Vela was a resounding success. After darkness began to settle in, Admiral Uno's 5th Attack Air Force over in Rabaul launched their final attempt against the American convoys. At 5.30pm, three Bettys that had launched out of Funakanao had spotted the convoy and reported their movements. They came across the LCIs southeast of Gatukai and the LSTs that were approaching the Gizo Strait. 23 Bettys in three Chutais, one armed with torpedoes and the other two with bombs, approached. The torpedo-armed Bettys attacked the LCIs while the bombers went for the LSTs. The American destroyers tossed up a lot of anti-aircraft fire as the torpedoes and bombs failed to hit a single target. Four Bettys would be damaged quite badly for their efforts. The Japanese reaction to the terrible results was to form an unrealistic plan to wipe out the American invasion by sending a single battalion to the island. When the landings became known, officers of the 8th Fleet and the 17th Army formed a conference. They estimated with accuracy, surprisingly, that the landing force was around a brigade in strength. One officer proposed the idea to send a battalion to counterland. General Imamura's HQ calmly pointed out that sending a single battalion against a brigade was like, quote, pouring water on a hot stone. The men were desperately more needed for the defense of Bungeville. The Japanese knew they were vastly outnumbered in the Solomons, and that the fight for the central Solomons was pretty much a lost cause. They believed their only chance to successfully defend the rest of the Solomons was to carry out a slow retreat in order to build up forces in Bougainville and Rabaul. It was decided that two rifle companies of the Miktami Battalion and a platoon from the Yokozuka 7th SNLF would be sent over to Haranu on the northeast corner of Vela La Vela. These forces would establish a barge staging base between Kolombangara and the Shortlands. Alongside this, Rakata Bay would be evacuated and its 7th Kure SNLF would set up a relay base at Choizel. 
Imamura and Kuzaka plan to hold Ranu for as long as possible, trying to establish a new supply route along the west coast of Choisel. Further Ranu operation, Admiral Ijin's destroyer squadron of Sazanami, Shigure, Hamakaze, and Izokaze were going to escort 22 barges, supported by three torpedo boats and two subchasers. The small armada departed Rabaul on August 17th, but Injun's destroyers were spotted quite quickly by Allied search planes, 100 miles out of Rabaul. In fact, Admiral Wilkinson was anticipating the Japanese were going to be heading for Kolombangara, or perhaps Barakoma. He had sent four destroyers, the Nicholas, O'Bannon, Taylor, and Chevalier, under Captain Thomas Ryan. Ryan had been an ensign in Yokohama during the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake, where he saved the life of one Mrs. Slack from a burning Grand Hotel. For this action, he was earned the Medal of Honor, making him one of 18 men to receive the Medal of Honor during the interwar period of 1920-1940. Ryan's force departed Tulagi while the other American convoy, the second echelon led by Cook, were landing equipment at Barakoma. By nightfall, Ryan's squadron were coming up the slot while the enemy convoy was being harassed by four Avengers. The Avengers failed to score any hits, but the anti-aircraft gunfire alerted Ryan as the Japanese were reversing course heading in his direction. At 12.29 a.m. on August the 18th, O'Bannon made radar contact and a few minutes later the Americans could see the Japanese ships. At 12.32, the Japanese spotted Ryan's force, prompting Injun to order a 45-degree turn northwest to try and lure the enemy away from the convoy. As his ruse succeeded, there would be a pretty ineffective long-range gun duel and torpedo duel seeing Hamakaze and Izokaze taking just slight damage. Meanwhile, the Japanese barges were racing to the coast. Now, Ryan believed he had foiled the reinforcement efforts when he engaged the destroyers. But because Chevalier was facing some mechanical failures and could not keep up in speed to chase the Japanese destroyers, Ryan decided to turn back to simply engage the already landed reinforcements over at Hirano. However, they managed to escape north too quickly. Thus, the Hirano operation was quite a bit of success, with a lot of luck at play for the Japanese. But now we are going to be shifting over to the frigid northern waters of the Aleutians. The fall of Attu and Munda were pivotal moments of the Pacific War that completely changed the course of their respective campaigns. When Munda was taken, the Japanese realized the Central Solomons were a lost cause and began to move all resources and men they could to Bougainville. When Attu was taken, the Japanese realized the Aleutian Islands campaign was a lost cause and they decided to evacuate the forces on Kiska. The Battle of the Pips and the miraculous evacuation of Kiska was completed by the end of July. Kiska was pummeled on July the 26th and the 27th under a clear, sunny weather. 104 tons of bombs hit Kiska's installations on the 26th in a large attack consisting of 32 B-24s, 24 P-38 Lightnings, and 38 P-40s. On the 27th, it was hit with 22 tons of bombs. And on August the 1st, Lieutenant Bernard O'Donnell conducted the first reconnaissance sweep since the July 27th bombing, and he observed no Japanese fighters no anti-aircraft fire, and no ships at harbor. Meanwhile, the blockade was being performed by Giffen and Griffin's task force, who bombarded Kiska as well. Intelligence crews working on aerial photographs of the island and its installations noted a number of odd features. Practically all the buildings around 23 and all appeared to be destroyed, but with rubble patterns suggesting demolition rather than bombing. 
The Japanese also appeared to have done no repair work on the craters in the North Head runway, which was very odd. It was kind of around-the-clock type of work for them. All of the garrison trucks seemed to be parked on the beach in clusters, and it seemed like they had been moving for days. Some pilots reported a bit of activity like narrowly missing flak and some vehicles and ships seen moving below. But Admiral Kincaid's HQ noted all of those reports were coming from green pilots. Experienced pilots were not reporting such things. Radio traffic had all but vanished. Some wondered if the bombing was so tremendous it destroyed all of the radios. Generals Butler and DeWitt believed the green pilots, but Generals Buckner and Holland Smith were very suspicious, pointing out that the Japanese had already carried out a secret, massive evacuation of Guadalcanal in the past. In fact, Buckner and Smith kept asking Admiral Kincaid to toss some Alaskan scouts ashore in some rubber boats at night prior to an invasion to report if the island was abandoned or not. But Kincaid had the last say in the matter, and he declined to do so. Kincaid's decision was to simply go ahead with a full-scale invasion of the islands, and in his words, If the enemy had evacuated the island, the troop landings would be a good training exercise, a super-dressed rehearsal, excellent for training purposes. On August the 12th, Captain George Ruddle, leading a squadron of four fighters circling low over the anti-aircraft gun positions on Kiska, received no flak. So he landed on her North Head runway, dodging nearly 30 craters. The three other fighters followed suit, and the pilots performed a tiny expedition for some time. They found no sign of people, just destroyed buildings and abandoned equipment. Nonetheless, Ruddle's report would not stop Kincaid only receiving some scolding for doing something so completely dangerous. The invasion of Kiska, codenamed Operation Cottage, was set for August the 15th. The invasion force was 30,000 Americans and 5,300 Canadians under the overall command of Major General Charles Harrison Corlett. It consisted of Brigadier General Archibald Arnold's 7th Division, Buckner's 4th Regiment, Colonel Roy Victor Rickard's 87th Mountain Infantry Regiment, the 13th Canadian Brigade, known as the Greenlight Force, which consisted of the Canadian Fusillade Regiment, the 1st Battalion of the Winnipeg Grenadiers, the Rocky Mountain Rangers Regiment, and Le Régiment Dule, led by Major General George Pierkers. There was also Colonel Robert Frederick's 1st Special Service Force, consisting of 2,500 paratroopers of elite American-Canadian commandos. Kiska marked the first time Canadian conscripts were sent to a combat zone in World War II. The men were equipped in Arctic gear, trained mostly at ADAC, practiced amphibious landings using LCIs and LCTs. Funny enough for me to say this, I've now realized I completely forgot to write something down in this script. The Canadian military and the American military actually have different structures. And obviously, different equipment. So for the Kiska operation, and actually a few other operations where American and Canadians would be working closely in the Pacific... For example, there was a theoretical uh, invasion of Japan that was supposed to happen under Operation Downfall. It never happened, but it would have involved a uh, large Canadian contingency. Well, in these circumstances, the Canadians had to adopt the American military structure of command. And they also had to use American gear. This was simply for, you know, logistical purposes. Uh, you can't be using different ammunition if you have to be helping each other out. And it, it just makes things easier, of course. But it is a little bit funny because the Canadians' entire military structure had to be changed for these operations just so it fit and the command structure worked out. 
Just a small point I should have made. I don't know why I didn't write this down in the scripts. The naval forces commanded by Admiral Rockwell were more than 100 warships strong, with Admiral Baker leading a group to Mabard Kiska with over 60 tons on August the 14th. The journey to the abandoned island was pretty uneventful. On August 15th, Admiral Rockwell dispatched the transports to gather off Kiska during a period of light fog. Major General Corlett's plan was to stage a diversionary landing using a detachment of Alaskan scouts led by Colonel Verbeck to hit Gertrude Cove, which was assumed to be heavily fortified. While this occurred, an advance force of the 1st, 2nd, and provisional battalions of the 1st Regiment, 1st Special Service Force, would secure the western side of the island, known as Quisling Cove. The main force would land at a beach on the north, near Kiska's Volcano. Colonel Verbeck's scouts and Colonel Robert Frederick's commandos were the first to come ashore. They were met by empty machine gun nests as they climbed Lard Hill, Larry Hill, and Lawson Hill. Some interesting names for hills. They investigated caves and ravines only to find destroyed equipment. But perhaps the enemy was simply further up the hills, saving their ammunition to ambush them all. During the morning, the main force landed on Kiska's northern side, whereupon they immediately began climbing some cliffs to reach objectives. In the process, each battalion of the 87th Mountain Regiment captured Robber Hill, Riot Hill, and Rose Hill. U.S. Army Lieutenant George Earle recalled this of the unique landscapes of Kiska. At one end was a perfectly shaped steaming volcano. Cloud-cushioned, well-wrapped, all around were cliff-walled shores, and, when visible, a bright green matting of waist-high tundra scrub and deep lush mosses. A great green sponge of slopes rising to a rocky knife-edge crest, nearly 800 feet above the shore in a fog, and zigzagging its ridgeline backbone towards the 4,000-foot cone of the volcano. Lieutenant Earl also noted the insistent rain and fog. Kiska saw roughly 250 days of rain per year on average, and held a ton of clouds blotting out the sun. On the day the Allied forces landed on the island, it was blanketed with a thick fog. As the Allied forces advanced, they ran into a variety of booby traps the Japanese had taken a lot of time to leave behind. These included typical landmines, improvised 155mm shells with trigger wires, M93 mines laid upside down wired to blocks of TNT, timed bombs, candle bombs, and the classic grenade with a tripwire. There was to be several casualties from booby traps. In the fog, as timed bombs or other traps went off, Allied forces opened fire towards noises believing the enemy was upon them. There was some friendly fire incidents amongst the Americans and the Canadians, but not as much as you would think, and not as much that has been perpetuated by quite a few videos on YouTube, mind you. Not going to name any names, but some of the bigger channels... It's actually kind of a myth, or a legend, that's been perpetuated in many books. In fact, the main source I've been using for this Aleutian Islands campaign is guilty of it, I'm sad to say. The friendly fire incidents on Kiska was not a large skirmish between American and Canadian forces or something. Nor did it result in many deaths or those being wounded by gunfire. No, that was pretty much all summed up to the booby traps. And there was quite a lot of them, mind you. Now, if you want to know what really happened, I suggest going over to my YouTube channel, the Pacific War Channel, and looking up my podcast interview I did with Brad St. Croix titled 
the Canadian experience during the Pacific War. Brad Saint-Croix has a PhD and he specialized in the military history of Canada. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it. This myth on Kiska really pisses him off. And he kind of vented a lot of anger at the, in the, during the podcast. It was a little humorous, mind you. But he had a lot to say about the event and, and other things of interest. And honestly, I strongly suggest uh, if you're interested to listen to that podcast. It's a really uh, different one. Um, it talked about a lot of theoretical battles and campaigns that would have happened if the Pacific War had gone on a bit longer, especially involving Canadian forces during Operation Downfall. But anyways, the Americans and Canadians suspected the Japanese might be retreating into the interior or hiding in some gun pits. So there was a tense situation the entire time. After the butchery that happened on Attu, who could blame them? The crack of a single rifle fire would be met with more, but it always died down quite quickly. Corlett's forces continued to climb upwards towards Lake Hill and Ranger Hill in the direction of the main enemy camp at Kiska Harbor. They found all the fortifications they came across abandoned. The second wave of the main force were brought over, consisting of the 1st Regiment 1st Special Service Force who landed at Little Kiska Island completely unopposed. By August the 18th, Corlett was confident the enemy was not on Kiska, but he continued to search nonetheless into the caves and ravines until August the 22nd. To quote Ian Toll's second book of his Pacific War trilogy, Considering the expenditure of naval ordnance and aerial bombs on an island that had been vacated by the enemy, and the tremendous investment of shipping and troops in a bloodless invasion, the Kiska operation had been slightly farcical. In Pearl Harbor, the news was received in good humor. Nimitz liked to tell visitors how advanced elements of a huge invasion force creeping inland with weapons at the ready were warmly greeted by a single affable dog that trotted out to beg for some food. Indeed, the capture of Kiska, which ushered in the end to the Aleutian Islands campaign, was kind of an enormous blunder, when you consider the amount of resources allocated to it. You always have to consider these resources could have been brought to places like the South Pacific. But hindsight is hindsight. After the Battle of Attu, the Allies expected an absolute bloodbath on Kiska. For Corlett's men, the Americans suffered 18 deaths, 170 wounded, the Canadians 4 killed and 4 wounded. 130 men got trench foot. The destroyer Abner Reed struck a Japanese mine on August 18th, suffering 70 dead and 47 wounded to bring the total casualties to 313. Generals Buckner and DeWitt sought an invasion of Paramashiro, but the Joint Chiefs of Staff would gradually reject the idea because it was simply seen to be easier to drive through the Central or South Pacific. But I would like to point out, if the South and Central Pacific campaigns did not go as well, the idea of hitting the Japanese home islands from the Aleutians could have been a very real thing. Kincaid, Butler, and Erickson, amongst many others, would leave the North Pacific to deploy in other theaters. It was only really Buckner who remained. DeWitt returned to the West Coast, and so did the majority of forces. Now, I really wanted to end this one on a feel-good note. So, the Allied forces on Kiska found more than just booby traps. It turned out the Japanese had abandoned a large number of docks on the island. So the Allied troops adopted many of them, and turned them into unit mascots and pets. Surviving photos of the soldiers and the dogs are abundant and quite cute. 
I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Check out my podcast interview with Brad St. Croix on the experience of Canadians during the Pacific War. And please don't forget, I myself have a Patreon account over at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel, where you can find exclusive podcasts. The most recent one is a two-part series on the responsibilities and failures of Emperor Hirohito in regards to the war. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. The amphibious assault of Vela La Vela was a huge success. Though now, the battle for the small island was on. The farcical battle of Kiska had ushered in the end of the Aleutian Islands campaign, birthing a long persisting myth to this very day of an incredible friendly fire battle between Americans and Canadians that never happened.